Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, where we are going to be looking together at verses 9 through 13, though our focus today primarily is going to be just verse 9. That's Matthew chapter 6, 9 through 13. You can find that passage on page 950 in your pew Bibles. And just a few short weeks ago, in making our way through the beginning of this sixth chapter of Matthew, we began looking together at what I called the three divisions that Jesus makes here, dealing with the whole of our Christian piety, that is, our righteous acts, our religious living, the Christian life, if you will. And the first division of the subject was that area of our almsgiving, or what I said properly is translated, our acts in which we do good to others. Then there was the question of our intimate and personal relationship with God, illustrated for us by Jesus in this area of prayer, which we touched briefly upon just last week, and we are going to return to in more detail here in just a moment. And the third was the question of personal discipline, illustrated here by Jesus in terms of fasting and its purpose in driving us towards utter reliance upon God. So we see that in the whole of our Christian existence, we have our dealings with others, we have our dealings with Almighty God Himself, and we have our dealing with ourselves. That's the basic outline that Jesus establishes in this epic sermon of all sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. But of the three, he spends the greatest amount of his time establishing for his disciples, in fact, establishing for his followers in all times, in all places, this area of prayer and how it is that we as his children are to approach this offer of sweet communion with the Father. We've already discussed this avenue of prayer in the negative that is given to us here. We are told by Jesus Christ that we are not to pray as the hypocrites do. And I told you about that word that's translated there as hypocrite from the Greek word uh, hupokrite, which literally means a play actor. We've looked at that word before in our look at Romans. We are not to pray as those who are acting as if we are on a stage, those who are pretending to be something other than what they are, those who are parading themselves before the eyes of men with their self-important street corner prayers and their long-winded temple soliloquies. Vain repetitions and the mere bulk or the quantity of our prayers are not what have value for us as the particular people of God. They will not produce for us special blessings for our benefit. We never, through some form of formulaic prayer, somehow force Almighty God to act on our behalf. We never put God into our debt. We never obligate God to do anything for us. You know, it's one of the things that so troubled me with the success and the fame of books like the prayer of Jabez when it came out. 
Because that book absolutely flew off the shelves of the so-called Christian bookstores. They couldn't sell enough of them. And the whole premise of that book is that in the prayer of Jabez, we can sort of unlock, as it were, some sort of prayer code, which forces God to bless us. In other words, God must give to us C because we have performed correctly A and B. This is exactly the kind of prayer that Jesus says we are not to do. We are to approach God forsaking vain repetitions, forgetting the eyes of the world, forgetting ourselves, and humbly come into His glorious presence. We are not to approach God as those who acknowledge God with their mouths while their hearts remain far, far away from Him. No, Jesus says that we are to go into our closet when we pray. We're to shut the door on the world. We're to shut out the eyes of the world. We're to shut out even ourselves and getting completely over ourselves. We are then to enter into the presence of Almighty God. We are not to pray as the hypocrites. Jesus goes even further than that in this sermon. He does not simply tell us how we are not to pray. But in fact, he makes a very direct point of telling us how indeed we are to pray. And that's what we have before us this morning. And what has come to be called in the church of Jesus Christ, the Lord's Prayer. Certainly you recognize it in the text. It's found not only in the text before us this morning in Matthew chapter 6, but also in, the, in Luke's gospel account in chapter 11. In Luke 11, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. And that's always caused me to sort of pause, sort of stop and consider the importance of this gift that we have been given in prayer. The idea that the disciples ask Jesus specifically to teach them to pray. Have you ever thought about that? I want you to think about it for a minute this morning at the outset here. These men, they have seen some things. They witnessed Jesus performing outrageous miracles. Things that went against the natural order of things. And yet we don't find them approaching him and asking him to teach them to turn water into wine. They did not approach the Son of God and ask Him to teach them to speak words to the wind and the waves so that the wind and the waves around them would obey their voice. They didn't even ask Him how to heal the sick or raise the dead to life. The fact that they didn't ask for those things tells us something about what they must have witnessed as the Lord Jesus Christ prayed. They were witness to all of those things. They witnessed the communion that Jesus Christ had with the Father in heaven as he would go off for hours alone to commune with the Father. And having witnessed that, they came to the feet of Jesus and they asked, Lord, teach us to pray. 
We have before us this morning an outline for prayer. A skeletal outline, if you will, built upon the great principles that we are to consider as we ourselves approach this sweet communion with the sovereign God of the universe. Prayer, communion with the Father, is an amazing blessing for the bride of Christ. And beloved, it's one that we cannot afford to take for granted. Once again, we see that we are not left dumb and blind, somehow ignorant of how it is that we are to approach Almighty God. But Jesus Himself, the King of kings, our Savior, the Son of God, in His own precious words, tells us specifically how indeed we are to pray. And we are going to be looking at this most instructive model of prayer for the next few weeks. And it's my prayer, beloved, that we will hear the Word of God as we sit at the feet of Jesus And listen to his own words and learn how it is that you and I are to approach this God in prayer. So if you would, please give your undivided attention to the word of God this morning and follow along as I read from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 6, just verses 9 through 13. Again, we will focus primarily this morning on verse 9. Jesus says this to his disciples. In this manner, therefore pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful for the opportunity that we have to sit under the preaching of your word this morning. We pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds, that you would take away those cares of the world that distract us that get in the way of the things that truly matter. We pray, Father, we would be able to give our attention to your word and hear this word that our Lord gives us on prayer. And Father, we ask it for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, allow me just here at the outset to clear up one issue that I think arises whenever we consider prayer specifically here as we specifically here as we consider it in the context of everything else that Jesus has been teaching. The question is bound to arise. Perhaps you're already wondering about it yourself. Well, Steve, if we are not to pray as the hypocrites do, if we are not to use vain repetitions as the hypocrites do, if this is what we would call the outline or the model for prayer and how we are to pray, then why do we repeat it word for word as Jesus has laid it out for us here in Matthew's gospel and again as we see it in Luke's account? Certainly you've thought about that before, right? Why do we recite this prayer word for word? In our worship. 
I want to tell you, I know you think about it because I've been asked this very question before and it's been more than once. Why do we repeat this prayer? I want to tell you, beloved, it's a good question and it's one that needs to be answered here at the outset of this series because of our own practice, even in the context of our worship here. We pray this very prayer each and every Lord's Day. There's been a a lot of debate in the church of Jesus Christ on this issue. Did Jesus give us this prayer as a way in which we are to pray? Are we simply to mechanically recite it knowing that he will bless this prayer when it's spoken in this way? Well, the truth is, beloved, we do recite this prayer, but I would hope it's not mechanically. To remind us of the glorious truth that in this prayer, we have everything that we need to know about how we truly ought to pray. It serves as a constant reminder for the people of God. We're never to simply recite it mechanically as if it were in and of itself some type of mystical incantation. The act of mechanically going through this prayer out of some rote sense of duty does not even begin to touch upon why Jesus Christ ever gave us this prayer in the first place. So why do we do it? In the Heidelberg Catechism, we are taught why we use this prayer in question and answer 118. Discussing why we are to pray and how we are to pray, it asks this question. Why has God commanded us to ask of him. I want you to listen to the answer. The, The question is, what has God commanded us to ask of him? This is the answer. All things necessary for soul and body. That is, everything in this life that we could ever need, both spiritually and physically, we are commanded to go to God with, who alone is able to meet our needs. So it is all things necessary for soul and body, which Christ our Lord comprised in the prayer which he himself taught us. You understand? Why is it that we repeat this prayer? Why is it it's so important that you and I not only know this prayer, but that we meditate upon this prayer continually? Because contained within this prayer, we have the mind of Almighty God concerning our prayer. Jesus comprised within these words all that you and I need to know to go to the Father as He commands us in order to seek everything necessary for both soul and body. That is what we confess as a church regarding this prayer. We can never remind ourselves of this precious truth too frequently. It's at the very center of our Christian lives. We are to know why we pray and how we ought to go about it. This form must continually be before our eyes and minds. It should serve to comfort us as we go about the things that you and I have been called to do by Almighty God in this life called to do quorum Deo before his very face. I want to tell you something, beloved, at the outset here. If you are simply repeating this prayer mechanically every week, thinking that 
only by saying it, you're doing your share in prayer. You've missed it. You've missed the boat. We are to think on the form even as we remember it aloud. That is exactly what the writers of the catechism did. They begin with why we are to do it. They then move in question 119 to laying out for us the words of the prayer itself taken directly from both Matthew and Luke's accounts. And then for the remainder of the catechism, they call our attention to the individual principles of the form itself in questions and answers 120 all the way through the end of the catechism, 129. These principles are to be known by the children of God so that they can properly pray. It's this very reason that Jesus makes it known to his disciples from all generations, and it is this very reason that the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism knew that they certainly had to include in the teach- this teaching if the catechism were to ever properly serve as a tool for the church when they consider the life of faith and how it is that we are to pray. Jesus says, in this manner, therefore pray. And then he proceeds to give us this instruction regarding the method of our prayer. And so having discussed this preliminary question that inevitably always arises, let us now move to the forms, to the principles laid out for us in the prayer itself, of which This morning I hope to cover two, both of which are found in verse 9. Our Father, who art in heaven. First, let's consider Jesus' proclaiming that the very first thing that we do when we pray is to stop and address our Father. (coughs) Beloved, have you ever thought about that? Jesus makes it clear here from the very beginning of his teaching on prayer that we are to begin by addressing Almighty God as our Father. And there's so much implied in that alone that I'm afraid we will only just barely be able to touch upon it this morning. As always, I encourage you to spend some time today even in your Lord's Day reflections and throughout this next week on the goodness of God, the magnificence of God, and to consider that we address Him. In fact, we are taught by the second person of the glorious Godhead to address Him as our Father. And I think there is more implied here than perhaps we notice at first glance. There's something here that indirectly pointed to by Jesus Christ that seems to be I think such an entirely foreign concept in the world, and unfortunately, even in much of what calls itself the Church of Jesus Christ today. And that is just pausing for a moment and thinking about what we're doing when we come to God in prayer. Sort of stopping ourselves, pausing ourselves for a moment, and not simply rushing or or barging into the presence of God in prayer. We are to pause. We are to reflect on what it is that we are doing. We are to stop and consider that we are children coming into the very presence of our Heavenly Father. The Father of all fathers. 
We are in a sense to begin prayer by recalling what it is that we are doing, who it is that we are approaching, and why it is that we think that we should. We're not to simply rush into prayer eager to make words from all of our fears and our anxieties and our worldly concerns. Our tendency in prayer is to give in to the flesh's desire to be constantly self-centered. Thinking only about ourselves and our need to be rid of all of our difficulties and problems. Have you ever seen this in your own approach to communion with God or in the approach of another? But I would beg you to focus in on your own approach and where you fall short. I can tell you I certainly have, and it always ends up with the person wanting to tell me how unfair it is that they have prayed and prayed and prayed, and yet God is doing nothing for them. He just will not answer them, and they are at the end of themselves trying to figure out what they are going to do. Beloved, does that sound familiar? Jesus tells us to do no such thing. From the very outset of entering this most blessed communion with Almighty God, you and I are called here indirectly to engage in recollection. There is a sense in which the first thing that everyone ought to do in prayer is to place your hand over your mouth figuratively. Failure to do so always results in the previous example. You will dare to begin to question Almighty God. If you cannot, for whatever reason, relate to that, allow me to give you a scriptural example of what it looks like when you and I fail to engage in recollection at the very outset of our prayer. I want you to think about the whole problem with Job. Remember Job? Read the book of Job and see if it does not become very clear to you exactly what this looks like. In his suffering... In his wretched condition, Job talked aloud towards God a great deal. He dared to even question God's purposes, God's workings. And time will not allow us to read all the words of Job this morning, but we know that Job, as he suffered tremendous, really unparalleled agony again and again and again in this life, it had an effect. Think about Job. He lost his children. He lost his financial stability. He lost his wealth. He lost the the love and the respect of his wife. He lost his servants. He even lost his health. And in the face of all of it, he began to despair of life itself. And when Job approached God, he had some questions about just why in the world this would have happened to him. Can you relate now? I mean, after all, Job had been a paragon of righteousness, right? Had he not done all that God called him to do? Just think, what did God think he was doing with Job's life in light of all that Job had done? In light of all that Job was known for? And so Job talks and he talks and he talks and then he talks some more. 
finally, finally, after an exhaustively long time, Job comes to the ends of his words, the end of his words, and the sovereign God of the universe answers him. And Job does not hear at all what he was expecting to hear. Perhaps even an apology? I don't know what Job was expecting God to say. But God says in Job 38, verses 2 and 3, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. And I trust, beloved, you know the rest of the story. God mercifully opens Job's eyes. He reveals himself even rather roughly to Job. He points out to Job that in this relationship, one of them is clearly the creator and one is clearly the creature. And Job will leave this conversation having no misgivings about which one he is. And at the end of God's answer to Job, Job does the only thing that one coming to such a knowledge can do. He says at the very end of the book, words that are fitting for our consideration this morning as we consider who it is that we are approaching when we pray and why we approach Him at all. In chapter 42, verses 2 through 6, listen to the words of Job, the one who dared to question God. He says this, starting with verse 2, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who darkens counsel, who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I have heard you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do you understand? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we begin really praying in a sense by saying nothing at all. We are to recollect, first and foremost, what is about to happen. And it's difficult, right? We are fallen human beings who are being pressed in by the urgency of our own predicaments. Our own particular anxieties and stresses and individual anguishes. We are like Job. We are like little children given to too much speaking. But Jesus calls you to recollect what you are about to do and to put your hand over your mouth as you do it. You are about to come to the sovereign God of the universe as a child coming to his Father. In a sense, the very essence of prayer is found in these two words and are properly understanding the implications of them when we say, Our Father. Beloved, if you can say it from your heart, then you know the weight of what is being implied with those two simple words. Have you ever considered them? 
Do you know what it is to call on God who's not simply like a father, but because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, he is our father. He is the father from whom all fatherhood derives its very name. He is not simply our flawed conception of earthly fathers. The very best earthly father is but a faint, dim, flickering reflection of God as father. Invoking the name of Almighty God, referring to him as our father, we acknowledge the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as being at the very center of our prayer life and our worship. Do you believe that? It's because of Jesus Christ and his work that you and I have been reconciled to our Father. Certainly that's not lost on Christ here. It is through him that we have been adopted as the children of God and made co-heirs with Christ. Because Jesus Christ came, lived blamelessly in the eyes of the law, he was able to go to the cross and take upon himself the penalty that our sin deserved. He died not because of us and our great love for him, but because of his great love for us. Not because of our love, but despite our hatred. He arose the third day, triumphant over sin, death, and the devil. He was carried up in the clouds to the glory of heaven, where we are told he now sits, according to Scripture, at the right hand of the Father in heaven, where he is actively working as our advocate. Going before the Father on our behalf, sanctifying our sin-stained works and our inadequate prayer. When we refer to God as our Father, we are reminded that we have been adopted by Him through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the Gospel, and we worship. First and foremost, we worship. We acknowledge God as our Father, and we praise Him for the grace which made such a relationship even possible. Again, the Heidelberg Catechism states that we call God our Father in question 120 for this purpose, to awaken in us at the very beginning of our prayer that childlike reverence for and trust in God, which are to be the ground of our prayer, namely that God has become our Father through Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of Him in faith than our parents refuse us earthly things. Beloved, do you know why you are to begin your communion with God calling upon Him as your Father? Have you considered it? Will you consider it? Will you consider why it is so precious to call on Almighty God as our Father? Beloved, I beg and plead with you this morning to consider these things. Let them lead you toward reverential, joyful, and exuberant worship in in faith and in life. One final thought here that I'm not going to go into any real detail on this morning, but I think bears pointing out. You notice that Jesus says that we are to begin our prayer by acknowledging Almighty God as our, our Father. 
He does not call upon us to call on my father directly, though it's certainly implied that there is an individual element here. But he calls on us to acknowledge that he is our father. Jesus does not call upon call us here to call upon him as individuals somehow separated apart from our brothers and sisters in Christ. But as his true children, we are reconciled to the Father through Jesus Christ. And so we are rightly to say, along with the family of God, our Father. Prayer, Jesus says, belongs to the church of Jesus Christ. I bring this up simply for you to make a side note this morning of just how strong our brotherly love, our caring concern for one another ought to be within the household of faith. The household of our Father in heaven. Do you understand? We are alike in this one thing in this world that truly matters. We are alike in that we, by the very same mercy and kindness of Almighty God, have been reconciled to our Father in and through the Son. We are alike in that we are all wretches, completely deserving of condemnation, but despite ourselves, we have been saved together by and through the precious work of Jesus Christ. We are now the family of God. In Jesus Christ. It's why I say brothers and sisters so much. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Let us cling to the thing that unites us and let go of the petty nonsense that divides us from one another. Do you see it for what it is in light of what Jesus is saying here? We have one Father, our Father in heaven. Let us all in like-mindedness go to our Father in heaven knowing that we have been made a glorious family through the perfect righteousness, the perfect work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have been united through Him to our Father in heaven. We ought to live in celebration of that fact together. I want you to listen to John Calvin on this point. He says this, For as he who truly and from the heart loves the father of a family, he extends the same love and goodwill to all of the family so that the zeal and affection that we feel for our heavenly parent, it becomes us to extend towards all people, his family, and in fine, his heritage which he has regarded so highly as to give them the appellation of the fullness of his only begotten Son. It becomes us to regard with a special affection those who are of the household of faith, whom the Apostle Paul has in express terms recommended to our care in everything. In short, all our prayers ought to bear reference to that community which our Lord has established in his kingdom, that is, his family. Beloved, I would challenge you to consider as you pray that we are not alone in this life. 
There are no only children in the family of God. I want you to think long and hard about how willing you are to be separated from your brothers and sisters in Christ over what can only be called pettiness in the grand scheme of our redemption in Jesus Christ. Go to your brother. Go to your sister. Let go of your sinful, petty separations and call upon God who through Christ has united you in the very same blood that gives life to your own soul. Indeed, what a blessing that He is our, our Father. Finally, I'll close this morning by pointing out to you that Jesus acknowledges that we are to call on our Father who is in heaven. Now, of course, that does not mean that he's somehow contained within the spatial boundaries of heaven. Nothing contains Almighty God. Rather, it calls our attention to the fact that he is entirely otherworldly. We are here below. We are creatures of the, in the creation, but he is far, far above us. He is in heaven and we are on earth and we are not to, like Job did, ever, ever forget it. We cannot even begin to comprehend His majesty and His glory and His power. If He were to reveal it completely here, this earth would unravel at the seams. It would be undone. We all would be like Isaiah in the temple. We would begin to unravel in the, in the presence of even just part of the holiness of God. His holiness will not stand our sinfulness, but He is in heaven. It should remind us of His greatness. It should remind us of His glory, of His his power, His sovereignty. He knows all things, and beloved, only heaven is suited for His full glory. When we drop to to our knees in prayer, we realize His greatness. We realize our own weakness. And we know that He is in heaven and that He sees all and that He knows all and that He tells us in His Word that He is there working all things together for the good of those who know Him. Those who have been called according to His purpose. All things are exposed and made naked before Him. He alone in heaven has the power to punish and to bless. He is our Father. He is in heaven where we cannot even begin to fathom what it will be like to behold His glory when we receive our eternal reward one day and get to stand in His glorious presence. Beloved, it should strike awe into the hearts of His children. And it should move us towards reverence as we consider the abode of Almighty God and the presence of His unfathomable glory. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when you pray, before you simply rush into the presence of Almighty God and ask anything for yourselves, before you ask for your daily bread, before you realize and acknowledge that you are what you are, a foul, wretched sinner apart from the precious blood of Jesus Christ covering your sin, you are as you are in Christ 
coming into the presence of just such a perfectly holy being, our Father in heaven, the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing when we pray. And so we really ought to take heed of ourselves. Have you taken heed of yourself as you enter into this sweet, blessed communion with our Father? Our glorious, all-powerful, all-glorious Father in heaven who has equipped us in Christ to come into His presence as children coming to their Father. Will you take heed of yourself as you pray? Let's pray.